Hello and welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast. It is great to have you with us. I'm Strawn Coleman, your host and part of the teaching team here at Practicing the Way. Each week on this podcast, we share a teaching from John Mark or other trusted voices in the formation space. In today's teaching, John Mark continues to explore our assumptions about what the Bible is, offering some literary background and helping us to grasp what it means that the Bible is written by both God and humanity. Here's John Mark. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. When I read the scriptures, I, for one, have all sorts of questions. Questions like, why the Bible? Why read it, study it, invest hours and hours over the coming year to journey through the Bible as a community? Why? Why live under the authority of this ancient library as followers of Jesus? And questions like, what is the Bible in the first place? This is a weird, alien, strange thing. What exactly is it? And then what is it for? What role does this play in the kingdom of God and life and everything? And where does it come from? Rumor has it that we don't actually have the original manuscripts. What we have is thousands of copies of the original manuscripts. Is that true? Is that not true? Is what we have reliable or not? Is the Bible full of errors and contradictions? Yes, no, kind of. What's the story? And then, of course, how do I read it? You ever think that? You get down, it's like... I mean, obviously you read, start at the top and go down, but how exactly do you read it and meet with God and read it with intelligence, but also with the right heart and mind? What exactly is this thing? And we don't have all the answers here at Bridgetown by any stretch of the imagination, but the hope for the first part of the year is to kind of eat, tackle each one of those questions one after the other. So last week we covered why the Bible. Remember, short answer, because we're followers of Jesus and Jesus was obsessed with the Bible. He was a rabbi or a Bible teacher, that's why. And then tonight we wanna tackle what is the Bible. Next week we'll go after what is the Bible for and then finally, how do I read it? So that's essentially the map for the next month or so. Sound good? Yes, anybody, kind of, sort of, okay. So tonight, here's the question to start off. What is the Bible? Is it an encyclopedia of truth where you look up a subject of interest and learn all there is to know? God, G, G, O, G, O, D, boom, 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 there it all is. Marriage, M, M, A, M, A, I. Sex, how to get ahead in life, is that what it is? Or is it not that at all? Is it an allegory about you and Jesus? And the right way to read it is to look for the deep, symbolic, or spiritual meaning. So this morning you read about Moses in the river, but actually the river was symbolic for the Holy Spirit, and it's how we flow in the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Hint, that's not right, but that's how a lot of people read the Bible, a lot of people I know. Or is your professor at Reed College in Bible as Lit class, is he right? Is this thing no different than the Iliad or the Odyssey? It's an ancient book, that's all. It's human, it's full of errors, it's full of contradictions, it's not trustworthy at all. But you know, it's interesting if you wanna know what ancient Hebrew men thought about God. Is that it? Is that true? I'm sure he has a lot of good stuff to say, or she. What, what, or is this something else? Now here's why this matters. If we misunderstand what the Bible is, the odds are that we will turn it into something it's not, that we will use it and abuse it to our own ends. So um, I have a little brother who is 12 years younger than me. So when I was in high school, he was a toddler, poor guy. And I remember once I was babysitting, I think I was 16 and he was four, and we were in the kitchen, and there's a pantry off to the side, and he said, you know, I want an apple, and I said, go for it in the pantry on the ground, and he goes in, and he takes out a giant red onion. And since I'm such a fantastic older brother, I said, go for it, Matt, all you, man. 
And I'm four years old, I just remember this gigantic mouth-watering bite all the way into the red onion. And then he just started to smile. And then he started to cry. And then he started to scream. It was so awesome. <laughs> but my point is, if you come to the Bible and you misunderstand what it is, the odds are it's going to taste weird in your mouth. It, it's going to come off wrong. So what exactly is this thing? Here's my answer. I would argue the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. I repeat, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Let's pull that apart phrase by phrase. First off, the Bible is a library. It's not a book. The title Bible is misleading. That is from the Latin, Biblia, and it means book. But the Bible itself never calls itself a book. In fact, it never calls itself the Bible. How ironic is that? Bible is an unbiblical name. No, it's not wrong to call it that, but it's just never called that in the Bible itself. And it's easy to forget that the Bible is not a book since it's all put together in one what? book. But remember, it wasn't put together like this until hundreds of years after Jesus with the invention of the Codex, and it wasn't for over a millennia later until Gutenberg did his thing and made it possible for you to carry your Bible around in your purse or your man bag or whatever it is. Prior to that, it was on scrolls made out of papyrus, for the most part from the Nile River in Egypt. There were 24 scrolls just for the Old Testament, not to mention all of the letters and such in the New Testament. It was a library. Now, it's very important that you wrap your head around this idea and that you think of the Bible as a library because it has a huge effect on how you read the Bible. Think about it. You come to a library very differently than you come at a book, right? A book usually has one genre. It's a novel, or it's a memoir, or it's a cookbook, or a textbook, or a comic book, or it's poetry. But a library has it all and more. But you read each type of literature very differently. Very few people sit down on the couch with a good cup of coffee and read through a cookbook. I mean, you're welcome to if you want. And even less people take notes and underline stuff in a sci-fi thriller. It's just not really how you read it. In the same way, the scriptures are diverse and have all sorts of types of writing and literature. For example, here's a few of the books that I'm reading right now. Um, I'm rereading Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, one of my all-time favorite nonfiction books. He's a journalist, great read. And then I'm reading The Drama of Doctrine. It's 600 pages long, thick, heady, academic textbook. Then I'm reading this little coffee table book, Daily Rituals, about 250. It's like two pages on 250 different artists and writers and creatives and what their daily routine was like. And then, of course, Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. I just, I'd never read any of his stuff. Josh Porter turned me on to him. I've read three of his novels in the last week. I just can't stop. <laughs> this is seriously so good. They should make a movie out of it or something. Now, each one of these books, here's my point, each one of these books conveys truth about God, the Bible, doctrine, human nature, science, medicine, chaos theory, remember that from the 90s? Each one of these conveys history, conveys truth, but each one does it in a very different way. And because of that, I read each one very differently. And this is how we need to come at the Bible. All sorts of people, all sorts of problems come when people don't recognize that the Bible is a library written by dozens of authors in all sorts of genres and three um, very different languages, full of history and memoir and biography and poetry and prophecy and apocalyptic, which is a genre of literature we don't even have anymore, census data, genealogical records, letters. I mean, so much is in here. And because of that, we need to read the Bible not literally, but literarily. See what I did right there? That was good. Meaning, we need to read the Bible according to its genre, according to, here's how you know, according to what the author was actually trying to get across. 
That's why we don't <clears throat> claim around here that we read the Bible literally. A lot of people brag about that or claim about that or make fun of people who, whatever, read the Bible literally. The reality is that nobody actually does that, if by literally you mean at face value. Because the Bible is chock full of metaphor and word picture and Hebrew and all sorts of ancient ideas. Now, most of the time when you read the Bible, it's crystal clear of what you're reading, you are to read literally or as a metaphor. For example, when you're reading Isaiah and you read that the trees of the field will clap their hands. I don't care how fundamentalist you are. Like, nobody reads that and actually says, it's going to happen one day. The trees, it's going to be like Lord of the Rings horror movie style. They're going to clap, you know, praise Jesus, whatever. I don't think so. No, it's pretty obvious. That's Hebrew poetry. That is a beautiful way of saying that when Jesus is king over everything, it will be felt at an ecological, even at a cosmic level, that creation itself will celebrate the freedom when Jesus is king of the world. It's beautiful. But then there are a number of other passages in scripture where it's not crystal clear if it's literal or if it's a metaphor. Think of Paul's famous line about Jesus coming back on the clouds. I very much think that is a metaphor don't have time to go into. Go back and listen to the Thessalonian series. A lot of other people very much think, no, Jesus is actually going to come back up there on the clouds. After all, it says that heaven is up there past the sky with the Jedi and such. It's out there. <laughs> so... We don't agree, whatever. Wherever you land on that, my point is we have to read the Bible not literally as much as literarily. Otherwise, we create unnecessary problems and people have to pick between God or the Bible and science or the Bible and history. But think about it. If you're reading, say, a fantasy novel like The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and halfway through you find out that guess what? C.S. Lewis made all that stuff up. There's no white witch. Maybe your mother-in-law, but other than that, there's no white witch. <laughs> there's no Aslan. He made all of that up. That is not like shattering to you. Why? Because it's not a history book. It's a fantasy novel. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean that it's not true. Because the reality is most of us have read that story and think, wow, that is true. And that is profound. In the same way, the Bible is full of all sorts of genres of literature that are true, but we don't necessarily read at a literal face value level. For example, and agree to disagree here, we just finished reading Genesis. There, you may or may not know this, there is all sorts of debate and controversy over the first 11 chapters in Genesis. From Genesis 12 to the right, Abraham to the right, it basically reads like history, the same kind of literature that we have in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel about King David and Solomon, all of that is for the most part backed up by archaeology. But Genesis 1 through 11 is something ancient. I mean, it goes back by its own account. It goes back millennia before Christ even. And no scholar is exactly sure how to read it or what the genre even is. There's no consensus, okay? So when you come to that debate, when you come to that controversy, the first question that you ask is not, is the Bible right or science? Was the earth created 10,000 years ago in six 24-hour days? Or is that a metaphor? Is that a word picture? Is that something else? Is the flood or was the flood global or local? What about Adam and Eve? Was there actually one man, one woman? Even though biochemistry says that actually is impossible. So what he's, is he more like an archetype? Or like the first question you ask is not even is this true or not? The first question you ask is what type of literature am I reading? Am I reading history? Is this the same thing as two kings? And if so, if I am reading history, does ancient historiography play by the same set of rules as modern historiography? Should I expect the exact same behavior from an ancient historian a millennia before Jesus that I do from a journalist for the New York Times, yes or no? Or is this not history at all? Is it something else? Is it myth? Not myth in the... Um, false or lie sense of the word, but in the academic sense of the word? Is it a pre-modern, pre-scientific story of origins that asks the big, huge questions of life? Who are we? Where do we come from? What is the meaning and purpose in life? Is there a God? What is he like? Or is it an allegory? Is it parabolic? Or is it poetry? Or it, what is it? Come Wednesday night, Dr. Timothy Mackey, 6.30 p.m., right here. 
My point for tonight is the first question you ask is, what type of literature is this? And then you go from there, because we read the Bible literarily because it is a library. Now, you with me? Yes, okay, moving on. It is a library of writings that are both divine and human, and we'll talk about each one. Writings that are divine in that God is behind each word and phrase. You read that last week with Jesus. Not the smallest letter will by any means pass away. In another spot, Jesus said that scripture cannot be broken, end quote. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That phrase right there, God breathed, is one word in Greek, it's theopneustos, and it's usually translated as inspired. The scriptures aren't just inspiring in like the pep talk sense of Jesus shot in the arm, but the scriptures are actually inspired in the technical sense of the word. Here's N.T. Wright's definition of inspiration. Inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that by his spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books God intended his people to have. I love that, to the point. So more literally, this word theopneustos means God-breathed. I love how Peter words it in 2 Peter 1.21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, that's a way of saying no you know, book in the Bible, came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. So if you, right now we're reading Exodus. If you imagine Moses, the author, up on Mount Sinai, it's not like he was just up there alone making crap up. Like, what do I, I need to lead a new nation, I need law, let's put God behind it, what should the law be, hmm, this, how about this, how about this, how about this, and let's put it in first person, and God said to kind of give me a little oomph and backing. No, this, no, no scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy, and prophecy here means the writing of the Bible, never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, or the writers of the Bible, though humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that language. The prophets, which is the main thing that the Bible calls the writers of the Bible, prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when you read this library of writings, you are reading the words of God. Let that sink into you. When you wake up tomorrow morning, oh my gosh, think about the gravity, the sobriety of that. You are reading the words of God himself. But that said, it is a library of writings that are both divine and human you are also reading the, the words of Moses or King David or the prophet Isaiah or the biographer Luke. So on one hand, don't imagine you know, Moses up on Mount Sinai making stuff up. But neither, on the other hand, don't imagine you know, Moses up on Mount Sinai in a trance-like, weird state, eyes rolled back, white, all super freaky, like robot script dictator, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. That, that's the same one, whoops. Thou, you know what I mean? Like that's just as, oh, and we laugh, but that's kind of how a lot of people think about the writing of the Bible. But that has never been what followers of Jesus have said about the Bible. That is not the ancient, historic, orthodox view. It never has been. That is, as far as I can tell, what Muslims believe about the Quran. It's also what Mormons believe about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. But it has never been what followers of Jesus, at least not at an academic level, have said about the Bible. That's just not, read the Bible. That's it's just not how God works in the Bible. God works through free, creative, intelligent, relational human beings. God is all about collaboration. So God breathed out, he inspired the Bible, but he did it through human beings. And in doing so, he did not erase the writer's personality or intellect or vocabulary, or style, or stage of life, or even his or her worldview. Paul, have you ever read Paul in the New Testament? He is genius, literally genius mind. 
He's also a bit persnickety at times, right? Ezekiel, have you read that yet? Well, you will. (laughs) That guy has a wild imagination. Mark, you remember Mark? He is curt, to the point, in a rush. I'm stressed out just, you know those people you're stressed out just to like be around them because they're always, (gasps) like Mark, I imagine like that. But he is a brilliant storyteller. Luke is pedantic, meticulous. He is a historian down to every last detail. When God inspired the writers of the Bible, he gave ample room for each writer's personality. And guess what? This is a beautiful thing. Often what happens is that the kind of human aspect of the Bible is on the kind of liberal or progressive side is thought of as a problem or an issue or proof that the Bible is not trustworthy or it's not actually divine, it's not actually from God because see here this, that, or the other. And then on the other side, on the conservative side, often the humanness of the Bible is kind of like a dirty little secret that we have to sweep under the rug and not tell the kids about until they're older. But this is not a dirty little secret. In fact, the writers of the Bible hide it in plain sight, are open and honest about the humanness of the Bible. I think, for example, here's one example of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul to the church of God in Corinth, not God to the church of God in Corinth, Paul. Then I love in chapter 1, he writes, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. (laughs) That's so awesome. (laughs) This is breathed out by God, but I think there's a little bit of Paul in there too. But then in chapter 7, he writes, I give this, he's, about to, he's teaching on marriage and sex, and he writes, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Whoa. Back, and that means this command comes from God. But then one paragraph later, later he writes, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. <laughs> oh, what the heck? And then at the end, he writes, what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command or Jesus' command. You see the tension there? Now, is Paul trying to hide it? Is he? No, it's right there. It's not a secret. It's not a dirty little, but there is a tension, and we have to hold the divine and the human side of the Bible together. I said this last week, but I want to restate it because I think it's so important. We live um, in the wake of, and really in the thick of, the conservative liberal Bible wars. As a general rule, and forgive the stereotype here, but conservatives emphasize the divine aspect of the Bible and think of it as scripture, it's God's thoughts about man, whereas liberals or progressives, on the other hand, emphasize the human side, the Bible is literature, it's man's thoughts about God and no more. Well, who's right? Well, kind of, yes. It's not an either or, it's a both and. The Bible is a divine and human library of writings. It's both scripture, sacred writings is what that word means, graphe in Greek, and it's literature, it's a poem, it's a biography, it's a memoir, it's a letter. The model I like best for how to hold the divine human tension together in scholarship is called the incarnational model. Maybe this is helpful, maybe not, but stay with me. The basic idea is that Jesus himself is the template for how we think about scripture. So, Jesus, at the center of the way of Jesus for two millennia now is the mystery or the paradox that is the incarnation or the infleshing is what that word means of Jesus. So ancient Orthodox historic faith has always said that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's not God in a body. That's how a lot of conservatives think about Jesus. Like God was, like Jesus was faking his humanity. I'm tired. I'm not really tired, but I say it to make you feel better. Or on the progressive side, you know, it's like he was 99% human, but with a spark of the divine or whatever my neighbor would say. No, ancient, historic, orthodox faith has always said Jesus is fully God and fully human. He is divinity and humanity existing in the same place. And if you're confused, join the club. But in the same way, the Bible is both divine and human. It's from the source that is the spirit of God himself. He breathed it out. He inspired it. And it's from Paul or Moses or Peter or John or I don't remember how many people I baptized. It's from both and. 
and we have to hold the two in tension. Otherwise, we end up with what um, Dr. Timothy Mackey, and I love this language, what he calls the golden tablets view of the Bible. Basically, it's the idea that the Bible kind of dropped out of heaven from God into Moses' lap or whatever, which is actually what Mormons believe about the Book of Mormon. But this is not, never, I want to say it again, this has never been what we have said, but this is how more and more people believe, and I know it's a caricature, but more and more people think on the conservative side about the Bible. But what happens is the progressives come along, or the liberals come along, imagine your professor at Reed College or whatever, Bible is lit class, and poke holes in that view, because it takes about two seconds to say, what about this, what about that, what about this? What about that? What about, I don't remember how many people I baptized. What about this? What about that? What about this thing in Exodus, this thing in Leviticus? Because if you buy into the golden tablets view, it creates all sorts of issues. So here's one case study, and we'll move on in a minute. Um, This is Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens. And listen to this. You waters above the skies. But what is that? You waters above the skies? This is one of many examples in the Old Testament of ancient cosmology, an ancient view of the cosmos. Here's a diagram. This is how your average ancient Hebrew or Egyptian or Babylonian thought about the cosmos. There was the earth, Under the earth was the waters of the great deep. The earth was standing on four pillars. And then above the sky were the waters over the sky. That's why the sky is blue, because there's an ocean up there. Duh. (laughs) So what's up with this psalm? You waters above the skies. If you buy into the golden tablets view, This is one of hundreds of problems for you in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, because are there waters above the sky? Nope, just Jedi, that's it. (laughs) Nothing else. There's there's not an ocean up there. That's why it's not even blue in Oregon, it's just gray. But, (laughs) so if you buy into the Golden Tablets view, this is a huge problem. This means the Bible is wrong. But if you buy into an incarnational model of the Bible, first off, this is exactly what you would expect. And secondly, this is beautiful. God breathed out, he inspired a poem through this ancient Hebrew artist calling all of creation to worship. This is not a lower view of the Bible, by the way. If anything, this is a, I think, much higher view of the Bible. It's more Jesus-like. I think of the poem in Philippians 2 about how Jesus humbled himself to become a man. So he had to set aside things like omnipresent. God is all places at all times. Is Jesus? He was in a body. He had to set aside his omniscience and ask questions. He humbled himself to become a man. Therefore, Paul writes, God exalted him to the highest place. In the same way, God, the one and very same God, humbled himself to write the Bible through Paul, Peter, Moses, this ancient Hebrew poet. He humbled himself. He set aside the fact that, dude, there's no ocean over the sky. And this is beautiful. So what God is like. He's like Jesus. He comes and he meets you, and he comes and he meets me right where you're at, and he takes the story forward. So, this is a library of writings that are both divine and human. Moving on. That together tell a unified story. Um, You hear this a lot around here, but I want to restate it. The Bible is a story. This is an idea that we will harp on all year long. Here's a pie chart of the three major types of literature in the Bible. Notice how much is narrative. 44%, just about half, Poetry is a whopping 33%. Look at how much is discourse or teaching. 23. That's still a lot. But by far, the largest chunk of the pie is narrative. Most of the Bible does not sound like thou shalt or thou shalt not. That's a minority. Most of the Bible sounds like there was a guy named Moses. That's what most of it sounds like. 
And even the other stuff, the poetry, the discourse, is all embedded in this much larger, uh, what in scholarship is called the meta-narrative, this kind of large, complex, drawn-out story that all of the writers tell together. For example, even the Torah, the 613 commandments that start in the middle of Exodus, we'll get there next week, and then go all the way through to Deuteronomy, even that, which is, that's the Torah or the law, the 630 commandments, 13 commandments, it comes after 60 chapters of narrative, setup, story, Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, Israel, the Exodus, Moses, and then finally you get to all the commandments. One of the things that we want to help you wrap your head around in the coming year is this idea. The next series is a six-week series on the story of God. We'll lay out the narrative arc from Genesis to Revelation. Now, here's why. Reading the Bible as a story is the best way to deal with the so-called contradictions that you hear on a regular basis are all over the Bible. Is this charge true or false, that the Bible is full of contradictions? Well, the answer is not yes or no. It's not that easy. The answer is it depends on how you read the Bible. If you read the Bible as an encyclopedia of truth, that's how I grew up reading it, then yes, the Bible is chock full of who knows how many contradictions. But if you read the Bible as a story, then actually there's very few at all. For example, Star Wars. (laughs) It all comes back to Star Wars. In The Empire Strikes Back, hands down, the best movie in the canon. That's right. In The Empire Strikes Back, Luke, Jedi Knight, is at the Dagobah system with Yoda, training to become a Jedi. And Yoda says, you can't go face Vader. You're not ready yet. Stay and complete the training. Luke is a baby and he goes off and does what he wants, but it's okay, watch the movie. In Return of the Jedi, the next movie, Luke comes back to Dagobah system, back to Yoda, and what does Yoda say? No, no, come on. Seriously. Oh, man. He says, you must face Vader. In fact, you have to face Vader in order to complete your training. So wait a minute. Don't face Vader. You have to face Vader. Like, is that a contradiction? Is that an error? No. It's, first, it's a movie, you guys. <laughs> Actually, it's more of a way of life. <laughs> Um, but no, it's, it's a story. And at one point in the story, Luke was not ready to go face Vader. But at another point in the story, not only was he ready, but that was what he had to do. Ah, gotta love Star Wars. In the same way, the Bible. Um, the Bible is full of stuff like that. For example, as followers of Jesus, we don't keep the food laws that are in the Torah. We'll get there in a week or two. You'll read law after law about what you can and you cannot eat as an ancient Israelite in the desert. Most of you don't keep that anymore. How many of you eat bacon? (laughs) So gross. (laughs) Gross, but it's not sin. I'll give it that. It's gross, but it's not sin, okay? I will judge you, but not because I follow Jesus, just because I think it's gross. Um, You're like, really? I'm not going to get into that tonight. But the reality is, The food laws from the Torah were for an earlier part of the story. They're not bad. In fact, they were a really good thing. But they no longer have bearing on you and me as followers of Jesus. Millennia later, Portland, Oregon, 215. Listen to what Paul, and this is not, I did not make this up. This is all over the New Testament. Listen to what Paul has to say about why followers of Jesus do not keep the Torah. Quote, before the coming of this faith, and he means the gospel of Jesus, we were held in custody, we, he means the Jews, under the law, the Torah, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. We were waiting for Jesus. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Here's Paul's Paul's analogy. That word guardian, by the way, can be translated nanny in English. (laughs) 
No, I'm dead serious. That was the basic idea. A guardian was a nanny. It was basically a mom or a dad that you paid to raise children. If you were wealthy, you had a guardian or you had a nanny. So this is Paul's analogy. That's what the Torah was like. It's like a guardian, like a nanny, like a mom or a dad. It was there to raise Israel, to grow Israel up, waiting for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. But now that Jesus has come, we don't need it anymore. Most of you aren't 35, and if you are, you don't have a nanny. Hopefully. Maybe you did. Was it bad to have a nanny? No, it's great when you're seven. It's not so hot when you're 35. Um, every parent gets this. So I'm a dad. I have three kids. I have a whole list of, like, rules in my house. Some of those rules are good advice for living forever. So one of the rules is you can't lie. Like, like zero tolerance policy in our family for lying because every healthy relationship is built on trust. So... That's great advice. Like for Jude right now, who's 10, it will still be great advice when he's 20, when he's 30, when he's 40, when he's 50. We also have a rule. You have to go to bed at 8.30 at night, and uh, the kids usually sleep till 7. Now, that's a great rule when you're 10. But what about when Jude is 25? Will that still be a good rule? No, in fact, if he were to go to bed at 8.30 and then sleep until 7 every morning, we would say, you are lazy, get off your butt and go to college or something, right? The very rule that was a good thing for a time eventually will become a bad thing. The Bible is full of stuff like that. There are all sorts of laws that we read in the Old Testament that are still fantastic, legitimate wisdom for how to live today. Thou shalt not murder. That's still great advice. Actually, it's a command. It's still the command. But laws about shellfish or wearing clothing made out of cotton and polyester, there was a time when that was necessary and healthy and good. But that part of the story is over. That's what Paul is writing about. In fact, it became a problem because the food laws and a ton of other stuff in the Torah was supposed to keep Israel separate from all of the nations, to keep Israel, don't assimilate into Canaan or Egypt or whatever, stay separate, stay to the people of God in order to draw out the Messiah through Israel. But now here's the problem. In the wake of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, now we, the people of Jesus, who are both Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish, now we are supposed not to stay separate. Now we are supposed to go out to the nations and assimilate into the nations with the good news of Jesus. So the very rules that were a good good thing for one point in the story now are a problem if you want to follow Jesus. And it doesn't mean that the laws are bad. It means they were for a time, and that time is no longer. Why? Because the scriptures at its core are a story. Tim Keller writes this, the reason for our confusion, and he means over the Bible, is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories each with a moral for how we should live our lives. And we'll talk later about why that's just not really right. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. And the beauty of a story is that everybody loves a good story, right? Young old, male, female, regardless of ethnicity or culture or background, educated, intellectual, blue-collar, doesn't matter. Everybody loves a good story. And the thing about a good story is it evokes the imagination. It opens up your heart and your mind to a whole new way of seeing life and the world. Recently, I read Michael Faber's novel, The Book of Strange New Things. It's this weird book. It's a kind of slow burn literary sci-fi novel about the first ever missionary to aliens. Yeah, it's weird. But anyway, in it, it's actually fantastic. He goes to this alien planet, first ever missionary, plants a church, but most of the book is about the Oatians, that's the name of the alien tribe, relationship with the Bible. And in it, the Oatians call the Bible the book of strange new things. And all through the book, read to us from the book of strange new things. Tell us a story from the book of strange new things. Tell us how to read the book of strange new things. And I know that I said the Bible's not a book, so I'm not backing off on that. It's a library. But that said, that's what this is. It's a book. It's a library of strange new things. It's a world where virgins give birth, where messiahs die and come back from the dead, 
where the last are first and the first are last, where the most courageous act is not military violence, but is willing self-sacrifice, where persecution is a virtue. It is the strange new world. And when you read it, it's not just a list of commands of what to do and not to do. It is, there's a ton in there. But at its core, it's a story, and it evokes the imagination, a new way for you to live and be human in God's world. All of which leads me to the last phrase in the definition. It's a library of writings that are both human and divine, that together tell a unified story, which leads us to Jesus. This library is all about Jesus. Now I have to clarify that. A lot, of time I hear pe- a lot of the time I hear people say stuff like, you know, Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Kind of, that's not really true. What people usually mean when they say that is that the Bible is an allegory and that's how they read it. And with all due respect, I think to read the Bible as an allegory is to fundamentally misunderstand what the Bible is. But what's right about that is that on just about every page, every chapter, every paragraph, every line, there is something that in this much larger kind of meta-narrative or story that leads up to Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, this is a fascinating aside to me, but um, the two most popular names for the Bible in the modern age are the Bible, and what's the other one? The Word of God. Okay, so you hear that a lot. Oh, I love to read my Bible, or I love to you know, study the Word, or dig into the Word, or whatever. So. Um, sorry, I did not mean to make fun of you. Um, actually, I did, but I feel guilty about it. Um, but uh, as I said earlier, the Bible never calls itself the Bible. It's not wrong to call it that. I do, but it's not a biblical name. But here's what you may or may not know. The Bible rarely, if ever, depending on who you talk to and how you interpret Psalm 119 and a few other places, the Bible rarely, if ever, calls itself the Word of God. In the New Testament, that phrase, the word of God, is almost always used for who? Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the what? Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Is that the Bible? No. Who is that? Jesus. In fact, most of the time when you read about the word, it's either Jesus or then a few other places. The word of God or the word means the gospel or the good news about Jesus and about his kingdom. So it's either Jesus or it's the message about Jesus. When we read in Paul, preach the word in season and out season. That doesn't mean teach the Bible in season and out of season, although I love to teach the Bible. That means preach the word, preach the message that Jesus is king and his kingdom is here and it's coming. Tell people about Jesus all the time whether you feel like it or not. That's what that is saying. Um, The classic misquote, and don't feel bad at all if you've done this, but is Hebrews chapter four. It's a famous line about how the word of God, you know the scripture? The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of bone and marrow. People almost always quote that about the Bible. You know, the Bible, it's living, it's active, it's, with all due respect, that's a great scripture. It's not remotely about the Bible. In context, that's about Jesus and about the message of Jesus and the gospel of kingdom. This library is not living, it's not, it's not breathing It's an amazing, sacred, God-inspired writing, collection of writings. It's not alive. Jesus is alive because Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. Now, this is so important to get. Otherwise, love for the Bible, which is a good thing. I want you all to love the Bible. And if you don't yet, I want you to grow in that over the coming year as you start to figure it out and read it and figure out how to read it. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, But over time, if we're not careful, love for the Bible can bend and warp into bibliolatry or the worship of the Bible. Now, I really don't think that's a problem here. It is other places. I really don't think it's here. Most of us here tonight have too low of a view of the Bible, not too high of a view of the Bible. But for that reason, I want to end just by rereading that passage from the beginning. Hopefully your Bible is still open in front of you to John chapter 5. If not, turn there again really fast. And I just want to read this over you. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says this. You study the scriptures, the graphe in Greek, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about who? Who? 
Yet me, Jesus, this library is about Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus here is speaking to the Pharisees, who were the religious conservatives of the day, who had a crazy high view of the Bible, but had lost the plot line of the Bible. So Jesus is calling the religious conservatives back, saying, listen, you need to repent. You lost it. You lost the plot line. This library is incredible. It's sacred. It's holy. In another spot we read that. It's breathed out by God. But it does not have eternal life. Jesus has eternal life. I say that because the worst thing that could happen over the next 12 months is that we as a community, and if you're new or visiting, that we just become a bunch of cold, smart, well-educated, kind of mean Bible nerds. Man, the phenomenon of the mean Christian. Talk about an oxymoron. Because you can know the Bible and not know Jesus. You can study and read the Bible every single day and not be anything like Jesus of Nazareth. And that doesn't mean this is a bad thing. This is a fantastic thing. I think it's essential to discipleship to Jesus. But we have to remember, this is in Jesus. This is a map to lead you and me to Jesus. So, what is the Bible? It's a library of writings that are both divine and human, together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Now, just in closing, um, I know that we're all over the map on this one, you know? And just in dialogue with you over the last week or two, it's weird because some of you are on the progressive or the, or the liberal side of the spectrum. And so for you, the idea that the Bible is divine, that it was inspired by God, that as a follower of Jesus, you live under its authority, this ancient library, even though it's radically out of step with the modern age and against the tide of culture in Portland. And that's really hard for you to swallow. Um, a lot of you on the other side grew up in a conservative church or home or whatever, and you're still that way. And so it's kind of more the golden tablets thing. And like this way of reading the Bible makes you nervous. Then I think most of us are just in the middle and kind of confused. Like, what is this thing? I don't really get it. And how does it help me get a date again? <laughs> Why should I read it? Really? It's not very fun. Why should I read this? Um, I think it's where a lot of us are. I, for one, um, you all know I love the Bible, but I've had an interesting kind of history with it. I grew up around the Bible. Um, I grew up in a really great home. My dad's a pastor, and there's a high view of the Bible in my home, and so there's actually a rule. I was not allowed to eat breakfast until I read my Bible every morning. So no Bible, no breakfast. That was the rule. So that's super legalistic fundamentalist, but to my parents' credit, myself and all of my siblings, we wake up every single day, decades later, and we read the Bible first thing before we eat breakfast. So I'm actually really thankful for that. I grew up around the Bible. I know not a lot of you have never read through the Bible before. That's great. We're so happy you're up for it. I've been reading through the Bible every single year since as long as I can remember. I think I started at like eight or nine or something like that. So I grew up around this, and I'm so grateful to my mom and my dad and my church, the heritage that I have. I just... I read that line in Timothy, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. I'm so thankful. But at the same time, I grew up in a church tradition that had a very specific way of reading the Bible, a way of reading the Bible that in the last decade or so has come to be called Biblicism. Maybe you're familiar with that, maybe not, but it's a huge issue. And the basic idea is that Biblicism, which is how most kind of evangelicals or conservatives in America read the Bible, is the Bible's an encyclopedia of truth, it's timeless, it's the owner's manual for life, uh, it's, it's scripture, there's a low view of the Bible as literature, the humanness of the Bible is this dirty little secret, and we quote it a lot, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, it's that kind of a way of reading the Bible. And it's not all wrong, there's good stuff in there, for sure, there is timeless truth in the Bible, for sure. But the problem with this way of reading the Bible is that basically the Bible just doesn't behave. The Bible just doesn't play by the rules that in particular conservative Americans set up for. It just does its own thing. It's, it's not an encyclopedia. It is something else, something far more deep and profound and fascinating and provocative and subversive to the right and to the left. And so what happens is this way of reading the Bible is a crisis of faith waiting to happen for every college freshman. It's just only a matter of time. So true to form in college and in my early 20s, 
I, the Bible, which I grew up around and loved, it just about was the end of my faith because I had so many questions. The way that I grew up reading the Bible just did not make sense anymore. The answers I was getting from the church and such were just not satisfactory to me, in my humble opinion. And so it was this crisis of faith. I just remember this season where I was up here teaching. I was young, and I was teaching for this college thing, and I would walk off the stage, and I would think to myself, was anything that I just said even remotely true? Horrible place to be in. But out of that, what I'm so thankful, what was born was rather than kind of walking away from the Bible and Jesus and my faith, instead what I discovered was that my problem was not with the Bible. My problem was with Biblicism. It was this very odd kind of American way of reading the Bible. That was my problem. And I discovered there's this whole other way of reading the Bible that transcends the liberal conservative divide that goes all the way back to Jesus and the New Testament and the early church fathers. It's a way of reading the Bible as scripture and literature, as divine and human, as kind of a story that leads us to Jesus. And this for me was so eye-opening. And so I've spent the last decade plus of my life, re, I feel like I've been relearning the Bible from ground up. And I've devoted basically the rest of my life to teaching this thing because there's so much life here. Not in this, life is in Jesus, but this leads me to Jesus and I want this for you. So all that to say, wherever you are at in your relationship to the Bible, wherever you plot yourself on the spectrum, whether you love the Bible, hate it, don't really care, whether you wanna read it, can't wait for tomorrow morning or you're dreading it, wherever you're at in that, just stay with us on this journey. And tomorrow morning, as you wake up and you pour yourself a cup of coffee and you open your Bible and you read a psalm and then you read Exodus 4 and 5 and 6, my hope and prayer is that you find truth there for sure, imagination there, yes, a whole new way to be human, all of that there, but above all that you find Jesus there. And as you have questions, and I'm sure you will, I still have questions, but I always think of Peter and the disciples' words to Jesus when everybody was leaving Jesus because of a hard teaching. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus alone, the words of eternal life are in Jesus and in here. And so my prayer is that you, as you open your Bible day after day after day, morning after morning after morning, that you find life in Jesus. Let's stand and pray. I really appreciated the way John Mark discerned the verses in Scripture that speak of the Word as being not primarily about the Bible itself, but Jesus and His Kingdom. Let's take some time now to just take that invitation, take a few deep breaths, center our heart on God and His love, and invite Jesus' presence into the very depth of our being. I'll leave 30 seconds here and then say, I mean to close the time. This podcast is from Practicing the Way. We develop resources to help churches and small groups apprentice in the way of Jesus. And all we make is completely free because it's already been paid for by The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Natalie from Sierra Madre, California, Michelle from Nashville, Tennessee, Ethan from Columbus, Ohio, Jenna from Shoto, Montana, and Nate from Pittsburgh, Indiana. Thank you all very, very much. To join this circle or to learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.